The Need to Know of Franchising. Welcome to Eden Exchanges. Today we spoke to Robert Graham, Director of CEO Consulting, Experts in Franchising, Licensing and Industry Innovations. Robert tells us the story of how he started out in the banking industry and touches on his experiences in the specialty and private consulting sector. Robert also gives us teasers on future industry endeavors, newcomers and innovative trends in franchise brand marketing. Welcome everyone, my name is Raghu, I'm here with Frank Zemus from Eden Exchange. Hi everyone. Today we're joined by Robert Graham, who's the Director of CEO Consulting, experts in franchising, licensing and expert innovators in the field as well. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Robert. Uh, good morning, good to be here. Okay, could you start off just telling us a little bit about your background and, and how did you get to be an expert in franchising? Sure, well I guess I started my career as a commercial lawyer many years ago now. My clients at that stage were mainly large banks and through that connection I ultimately found my way into the banking industry for a 15 year period, 10 years with ANZ and 5 with Westpac. It was really within the banks that I sort of first got heavily involved with franchising in Australia. Key role I had at ANZ was the Australian Head of Franchising for many years and in that capacity I, I did a couple of things that are still quite relevant in the market today. Um, one in particular was the lending accreditation schemes that the banks okay. all use today for assessing the risk profile of, of franchise groups and, yep. and in turn the lending packages that they'll, they'll give to yep. franchisees. So uh, that was a piece of work I, I did uh, probably 17 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Then when I moved to Westpac, I uh, also uh, had the role of uh, being their Australian Head of Franchising for many years. So, so I guess over that 15-year period, have dealt with literally hundreds of different Australian right. franchises, big and small, and, and many international franchises as well. When I left the banking industry eight or nine years ago now, started going down the path of private consulting, which is really uh, what, I, what I'm doing now with CEO consulting. Uh, had a short stint in one of the specialist consulting firms there and saw some things I liked and didn't like and thought that taking that into my own practice and model and business now uh, mm-hmm. was something that would be a good thing to follow. So that's taken me to, to where I am today. So in that period, in addition to working in the banks, I've also been a franchisor. When I was back at Westpac, purchased a company most people will know called Rams Home Loans. Yep. Rams was a very large franchise business and I was put in as the CEO of Rams to, to re-engineer the franchise and, and get it to a long-term uh, position and now that's you know, a business that's still quite active in the market today. So I've had the experience from, from a number of levels. Yeah, and in terms of that gamut of experience from a big corporate to running your own franchise, how are you seeing the industry changing now in terms of back then to now? Look, I think Australia as a, as a franchise sector is quite different to what you'll find in many other countries. You know, I think it's quite well known that in Australia we, we're big lovers of franchising, mm-hmm. both at a consumer level. Consumers generally love you know, brands. And, and franchising brings those brands to the market as well as bringing new concepts. Franchising is a great way of, of helping to finance and organise a new business to launch it and bring these new concepts to market. So, you know, we continue to see a lot of change or, or innovation in the food and beverage sector. That There's always something happening there. You, you sort of think often it's done to death. But there's it's always new, healthier, isn't it? Well, yeah, there's a big, big trend <laughs> yeah. towards the, the healthy. But yeah. equally, you know, customers still love, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in desserts. And right. you know, we had the run on cupcakes there many years ago yeah. as well. They all continue. But look, they're probably some of the lesser known ones. There's a lot of, I guess, 
new concepts and innovation happening in a whole range of technology-based services these days. Yeah. Not at liberty to, to mention names of some companies, but I'm seeing a lot of activity with companies organising themselves in you know, services around uh, social media is an obvious one because you know, social media is... It's not new now, but it's still a relatively new form of marketing for many companies. And so the service providers started off small, like freelancer type people. They're now sort of corporatizing and, and through that, many groups are doing that in the form of a franchise. There's others doing quite nifty work around removal of content from the web. So where you get a bad review or someone says something nasty about you that you think is unfounded, there are providers out there now, some of whom are looking to franchise who can help you remove the content. That's so interesting. They'll, they'll deal with Google, for example, and, mm -hmm. and help you remove that. So some really great ideas there. So a whole range of industries, like franchising is basically a distribution method. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, everyone mm. wants to sell their product or service and, and franchising helps make that happen. So yeah, yeah. obviously when there's new concepts, you know, people look at how they're going to distribute that through what are their distribution channels. Mm -hmm. And you know, franchising is a great way to to get owner-operators involved and, and help you expand more quickly into new markets or, or new geographic areas where yeah. you can't can't get yourself there quickly mm. enough. Yeah. It's also a proven model too, isn't it? So, you know, you're, you're taking on a business that's already sort of proven itself. It's got some runs on the board. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Going back to my comments earlier about the work mm. I did in, in ANZ and setting up the accreditation systems, you know, that's basically a risk assessment. Yep. And within that, it recognises that a... A franchise business is more likely to survive and, and more likely to grow than yep. a, an independent small business. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but yeah, everyone knows equally there are franchises that fail as well. Sure. And even in the good franchise systems, mm. there's always a bottom 10% of performance. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got to look within these groups. Mm. Which, which is a good segue to the next question about mm. what do you think the difference between a well run franchise business is and a poorly run franchise is? And what should prospective franchisees look out for? Sure. There's typically five things that I always have a look at first up and you know, the first one's not about the franchise itself it's more about the underlying business making a bad business or trying to sell a bad product through a franchise is not going to turn it into a good product or a good business just because you franchised it so the underlying business proposition the product or service needs to be strong customers need to want to buy that product or access that service so you know Having a good product or service and having a good proposition around that for the customer to make them want to buy and to have a point of difference to your competitors, you know, that has to exist before you franchise. So I think that's really the first factor I look at for a franchise that's more likely to succeed. second thing I look at within the franchise is, is leadership. I guess because I do a lot of work in the startup space for franchising, so I see a lot of business owners very excited about their concept and, and wanting to grow their business through franchising. And time and time again, you see some of these people are probably not the right people to franchise or to run a franchise. So leadership is very important. Just because somebody, the founder, is technically good at what they do doesn't mean they're going to be a good business person and it doesn't mean they're going to be a good leader of a group of franchisees. So I think making sure that person has the right attributes and personality to, to be a franchisor, because it, yeah. it's a tough job sometimes as a franchisor. I know when I was doing that role back at Rams, you know, it, it's not just about the business. You become involved in people's lives, you know, because yeah. they've often mortgaged the house to finance sure. the business and there's a family sitting behind them. So that aspect creeps into your relationship and not all franchisors or 
aspiring franchisors want to have that type of involvement or are capable of handling it uh, yep. it can get quite stressful. Third thing I look at is, I guess, the businesses focus on marketing and attention or awareness of, of customer satisfaction. Again, you know, if, if customers aren't happy, they're not going to come back. Yep. And as you start adding franchisees into your distribution network or model, that can be a very powerful thing in a positive way, but equally it can be a very negative thing if you get someone or a franchisee who's not good at customer service and you start getting bad reviews or, or problems in that area. So it's always good to check online, particularly if it's a food-based franchise. There's normally plenty of blogs and comments about whether the food's any good or the customer service was any good. From a marketing perspective, you know the franchise group also needs to be constantly thinking about and investing in marketing. A franchisee buys a franchise with, with many expectations, and one of them is that the franchisor will develop the brand, mm-hmm. protect that brand, and also help, I guess, generate leads or generate customers for the franchisee. So if there's not a, a, a solid marketing plan and the money behind that to make it happen, then you know, things can peter out pretty quickly. Fourth thing I look at is, I guess, the quality of sites and franchisees that that franchise group might have already taken on. You do see a lot of these smaller or startup franchises a bit desperate to grow quickly and they take a few more risks in terms of the sites they take on early. You know, they get scared by some of the higher rents in the shopping centres, for example. And equally, they'll often take on an early stage franchisee who's probably not quite right, but they're prepared to give it a go and prepared to pay the money. So that can be a very dangerous thing that can ultimately stunt the growth of the group. So I spend a lot of time with my startup clients talking to them about the importance of the first three or four franchisees joining their group, making sure they're the right people, you know, that they fit all of the profile characteristics that we look at, and making sure that they're going into a good territory or, or good store location so that the likelihood of success is very strong. Yeah. Um, because if, if you can't get it right for the first three or four, you're really not going to sell too many franchises after oh, that. Absolutely. Yeah. And from there, like that's a pretty um, thorough list, but do you think there's like an optimal time, almost like how long's a piece of string, but an optimal time to franchise the business, assuming some of these factors are in play? Again, I think it comes back to industry and the people behind the franchise. For example, I guess traditionally you would want to see the business have a proven model in mm-hmm. its current form before it's franchised. So that might mean they've got three or four shops or stores operating already. Those stores are making good money. Customers are happy. You know, the brand is developing. That's definitely a good place to franchise from. But I do come across many, many business owners looking to move earlier than that. Might only have one store, for example. You can franchise at any stage. So from a legal perspective, there's no laws about having to have existing stores or sites. Mm. I've even had a few where, particularly in the technology space, and I've, I've got a couple of clients I'm working with now in this area where they've got a new concept, you know, a new piece of technology, and they need to get it to market quickly because things change in the market very quickly when you're dealing with software and technology. And you know, so we've actually constructed a franchise around the concept, and the launch of the concept has coincided with the launch of the franchise. And in those circumstances, you, you do need to be more careful and you, the owners of the franchise need to be more flexible in the deal they're going to offer a franchisee because there's a lot more risk. So if they're prepared to package the franchise in a way that reflects the risks and supports the new franchisee, then, then that can work as well. 
But if you're doing that, for example, in food and beverage, I'd be less inclined to sure. do that. You'd really want to see a few shops up and running and yep. see the customer reactions, see what sort of profit margins they're making, check their supply chain is working, all of these sorts of things before you start going too aggressively down the franchise path. Robert, a master franchise agreement can be quite complex. What is important for people looking to get into such an agreement? And where have you seen, where have you seen those sort of agreements fall over in the past? I tend to see master franchise agreements in Australia arise in, in two circumstances. Uh, one is it might be an international franchise selling the rights to all of Australia, yep. the master franchise rights. And the other is you'll have an Australian-based franchise where you know, they, they'll want to break it down on a state basis, for example. But quite often, it'll be a, an East Coast-based franchise, um, hmm. you know, head office in Melbourne or Sydney, and uh, they'll put a master franchise in place only for... Western Australia and South Australia, yep. simply because of the distance. So they're, they're the, the circumstances. The things to th- consider is obviously the economics of it. Um, one of the biggest failings of a master franchise is you've got to think of it like you're putting a third layer in the business. You've got your franchisor at the top, your franchisees out dealing with customers, and then the master franchisee sits in between as this additional layer. And obviously they, they're there to make money as well. And some businesses just are not profitable enough to support those extra mouths to feed. Sure. And that's where I see a lot of problems arise. Mm-hmm. So you really need to do your numbers and, and understand the, the profitability for everyone in that model. The other consideration, I guess, is like we spoke about before with investors, a master franchisee will end up having a direct relationship with the franchisees. So it means the guys at head office, the franchisor, are not really dealing directly with franchisees. And problems can sort of creep in there if the master franchisee is not in sync with, yeah. with the main plan or, or program that the franchisor is running. They often you know, start to deviate yeah, or to try and change thing. the system or yeah. cut corners sometimes, particularly if they're in Perth. They're a long way away and no one's checking on them. Yeah, right. <laughs> you see, right. I've seen that happen. And uh, you know, from a franchisee perspective, that, that can be disheartening and cause some financial damage to their business as well. So keeping the master and the franchisor in sync, uh, working to a common is really important as well. They're probably the the key things. The other one that gets a little tricky sometimes is around marketing. If the franchise is running a a group marketing fund or program, who's going to run that? Is it going to be the franchisor or each individual master franchisee? And again, if, if it's at a master franchisee level, Everyone has their own ideas when it comes to marketing. Some people want to spend money at different times and others don't. So that can get messy. Equally, the issue of websites and social media accounts, who controls them in that scenario? Is is it the franchisor or the individual master franchisee? So you really need to think through those issues when setting up your master franchise model because if you don't, you can really get tangled up very quickly and it can get pretty ugly. Okay, excellent. So leading on, what are the common mistakes that franchisors make when setting up a franchise? So I think you've covered a couple of those. Mm. I mean, what are you called on to help with those? What are the usual sort of cases that... Uh, yeah, well, to be honest, probably the biggest one. Like most of the work I do with startup franchises is the, the clients come to me before they're franchised and we're able to properly plan out what needs to be done. So you do avoid a lot of the common mistakes I'll talk about in a moment. And what sort of um, period do, do you sort of allow for that planning? In urgent cases, we've we've done all of the planning and design work and built the franchise in, in a month. I prefer the clients to take a little bit longer because some very important 
scenarios and decisions need mm. to be considered by the client in that process. And so typically three to four months is, okay. is the process. If a client wants to sort of get on with it, some clients take a year or two because they've got other things to do as well in between. But um, but coming to your question about common mistakes, yeah. probably the single biggest one I see regularly is they haven't done the planning and they've gone straight to a lawyer and said, I want to franchise my business, yeah. prepare the documents for me, please. And there are some lawyers who have some commercial acumen, but many don't. Mm -hmm. And some of them don't even really have much expertise in franchising. And some of the worst cases I've seen are these very ones where a suburban lawyer with no franchise expertise has tried to put together a set of documents. Sure, they've filled in what the royalties will be and all the other bits and pieces off their checklist, but they've really given no thought to the industry, to the market that the client's operating yeah. in, what the changes will be over the next five or 10 years, yeah. what competitors are doing, all of the commercial aspects of the business and the operational aspects as well. So sure, they've got a legal document, but I've seen some really horrible cases mm -hmm. of, of where they've been botched up. And I had one notable one a couple of years ago where you know, we, we literally had to rip up the existing agreement. They'd already sold a few franchises, hadn't been done properly. You know, the client was in breach of the franchising code because of the way they'd gone about it. And we just literally had to start again and renegotiate with the franchisees that they'd already sold to because those franchisees had a right to terminate because things hadn't been done properly. So it's a really messy situation. Wow. So that, that's probably the biggest one, Frank. Yeah. The Probably the other ones that I notice, and these sort of feed in the success factors as well as about Franchising is not just about having franchisees out selling a product. It's also about brand development. And even if you're a small business, you need to understand what your brand stands for. Yeah. You know, what is your message to the customers or to the market? Yeah. And you need to nurture and grow that brand. You don't need to spend a lot of money to do it, but you do need to have some direction around your brand because it will guide you on a lot of the decisions you make subsequently. So, yeah, a common mistake is not understanding what their brand message is and, and not putting at least a small amount of investment into developing that brand in the first few years of having mm. a franchise. It's kind of having a vision, isn't it? For your brand. Part of vision, yeah. part of your overall strategy. Yeah. And look, when we cut to the chase about why do people buy franchises and why do people set up a franchise as a franchisor, Ultimately, they're all businesses and people are there to make money. And part of making money is selling the business at the end of the day. Yep. And I'll give you an example because these, these were sort of public figures at the time. I mentioned earlier my role with Rams Home Loans. Um, when Westpac purchased Rams, um, that business had, had been on the market for a while. They purchased it in distressed circumstances because the GFC had just hit and most mortgage companies <laughs> were suffering pretty badly very quickly. But when they struck the price for that business, more than 40% of the, the purchase price was attributed to the brand value, the goodwill attached to the brand. It was a, you know, we're talking multi-millions of dollars in this case. So on a smaller scale, you see that with, with all of these franchises as well. So if you're a franchisor wanting to develop a franchise business and have plans to sell it at some stage... You need to not only focus on, I guess, the, the distribution network, but you also need to have a plan around your brand and grow that brand. Your franchisees will help you grow it if you run the franchise mm -hmm. properly. And ultimately, when you sell, you should be in a position to attribute you know, a fairly good chunk of money to 
the goodwill attaching to that brand. So right. without that, your sale price will be a lot lower. Right. And you've got to start that right at the beginning. And do you have any process or anything along the lines to identify how you can differentiate your brand as a franchise and that out as a direction where you can head towards as a goal? Or do you think there's a bit more of the um, put it to market and see how there's a response? It's definitely better to have a plan beforehand. Yep. And you know there are some very good people around who specialise in this. I'm not a brand expert per se, but there are companies and people I work with or partner with who, who we bring in to, to work on this. Not every new franchise wants to spend money on it. That's, that's yep. part of the problem. But to be honest, for under $10,000, you can, can do a very important piece of work early in the process to you know, get that brand message right and have the plan that we've been speaking about mm-hmm. and then revisit that as you go along. You don't need to spend hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars, but definitely doing it early and having some professional advice can really give some clarity. A lot of owners think they're good at marketing and brand development because they've come up with a tagline or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more than that. And ultimately, a franchisor needs to remember one of the things a franchisee is buying from them yeah is access to the brand. It becomes a shared asset for the group. Even though ownership's with the franchisor, everyone's operating under that brand. And you need to have consistency of application and decision-making around your brand messages and your brand strategy. Oh, look, you mentioned a, a couple of growth categories like technology and mm-hmm. you know food. Is there any other ones that you, you can think of in franchising now which, which are kind of... Uh... Yeah, well, I'm seeing, I guess, the innovation and the growth in, in a couple of areas. Like, yeah, food and beverage accounts for about 50% of franchises yep. in Australia and, and probably always will. Yeah, within that, you get yeah, innovations in product lines and distribution methods. So, yeah, I mentioned before cupcakes. That was... it's. Oh. It's not dead, but it's sort of peaked and come off again. Yeah, it's come <laughs> yeah. off, definitely come off. <laughs> but, uh, but look, you know, yeah, there's a couple of obvious ones that most people will know about in the market today. You see on, on the health category side, acai bowls, you know, the, the healthy food bowls that people yeah. eat, yeah. protein-based drinks. Yeah, so definitely. we move from fruit juices to protein-type drinks. What else have we got? We've got poke is another one. Yeah, if you pronounce that correctly. P-O-K-E. P-O-K-E. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, it's a... Fusion is, is the yeah, word. Yeah, uh, yeah. A crossover between Hawaiian, Japanese. Yeah, it's Asian, a bit like yeah, yeah, deconstructed sushi, basically, oh, okay, with yeah. lots of healthy ingredients and yeah. various combinations. Got, like, and crazy graphics and, I think, the sort of Asian yeah. There's probably and... four or five poke groups that have popped up around Australia okay. in the last two years, mm-hmm. and, and some are franchised already, growing very quickly. So that's it's not new. It's come from overseas. So we're always seeing a lot of stuff coming from Asia in particular. The other thing in terms of innovation is is the distribution channels so um, you know some of the coffee clients that i'm working with at the moment uh, are continuing to to have their core cafe style but they're also introducing things like drive-through coffee and putting their coffee shops inside large department stores and areas like this so they're new ways of taking their product to the customer so there's some innovation in those categories outside of food yeah, I've got some really interesting clients working in vertical farming, which is really the concept of instead of the traditional farmer with a big block of land and putting the crops out there for the rain and the pests to eat, it's pretty much indoor farming in, in very controlled circumstances. Um, you see a lot of it in Europe where space is short. Uh, so basically they're stacking the vegetables or the, the, the plants on top of each other. And around that, they've developed technologies um, to 
you know, basically robotic type technologies to plant the seeds, water the plants, mm. control the temperature, really? the lighting and all of these yeah. things that go into accelerating the growth cycle of, of the vegetables. So there you've got effectively a farming type franchise with technology combined and uh, that's a pretty exciting thing that, that is sort of starting to hit the market. In the retailing space, another client dealing with holograms. Um, holograms you know, so hologram right, displays, yeah. yeah. So um, 3D images uh, to display a bit of telephone, a block of chocolate or something like that. So again, technology, and this was one of the ones I mentioned before where the franchise has been developed at a concept stage before they've actually launched it. So um, that that's an interesting one. Recycling is another area where um, you know, I have clients, they're recycling a lot of products out of businesses and using the proceeds of the recycling to reinvest in the community and and they charge a small fee for for the recycling service and you know you'd be surprised where they're taking that into various types of mainstream businesses and you know it's got global application so people you know you think recycling's not that sexy but there can be a lot of money in it drug testing is another area that the the problems in society with drugs but particularly drugs in the workplace there's a, a a client I've been working with for a number of years who, who now has over 50 franchises wow. and they go in and do workplace drug testing. Yep. So, you know, the list goes on and on. Mm. There's people with mm. innovative medical procedures and professional services. So mm. a lot of stuff outside of food, but there's always people coming up with nifty ideas. Yeah. It's a question of, you know, can they be franchised and really how sustainable is it? A lot of these things, we, we mentioned cupcakes a few times, they sort of come for a few years and die out. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. the, the sustainability of that is, is important to consider. Uh, and it's, it is also interesting what drives the trends as well. I mean, sometimes they can be short-term trends or long-term. Like sometimes cupcakes can come in vogue due to certain TV shows and yep. things like that. But from our end, like we're seeing a lot of trends of the type of inquirer looking out for businesses as well. And often that can drive the innovation as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we're seeing a lot more baby boomers mm-hmm. applying for franchises, either exiting work or exiting other businesses. We're seeing a lot of overseas recent immigrants or people mm-hmm. who have been in the country for five to ten years also applying for franchises as well. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there seem to be a lot of redundancies as well in certain sectors that are driving people towards franchising, like manufacturing across many sectors like that, the financial sectors as well. And on the other end, we're also seeing more women mm-hmm. as well entering mm-hmm. as their buying power increases mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just also increase. Uh, interesting that the type of market also drives the innovation from the as well as the innovation coming in because you mentioned trends like you know environmental trends, mm-hmm. recycling, you know Asian influence as well. It's also interesting that these are balanced by the, the type of inquiries because we'll end up you know, dealing with thousands of these a month. And then these certain trends you mentioned are the ones that pop up as well. Yeah. So it, it's just interesting how you see them interacting with the market, creating that innovation or the innovation. Yeah, well, well, the I guess yeah. that phenomenon is definitely there. I'm, yeah. I'm seeing exactly the things you've just described yeah. uh, in terms of people inquiring about franchises yeah. that I'm working with. I guess, though, for, for there's got to be the franchises there for them to take up. That's right, um, yeah. I guess one of the additional things that I'm, I'm seeing is the international side, mm. particularly franchises out of Asia coming into Australia. Again, a lot of them in the food sector because as you look at the community mix in, I guess, our major cities like Sydney and Melbourne in particular, mm-hmm. you know, the Asian population is very large. I'm seeing a lot of people making inquiries who are Asian and very young. 
you know, they're even still at university in some cases. Yeah. And, um, you know, they come from families that, that have access to money. They've obviously got a strong business background through the family. And they're not just looking to buy a franchise with a single store. They're, they have ambitions for multi-store ownership and often across multiple brands. You know, they don't just want to be with this coffee chain, for example. They want to have franchises with five different brands and, and build a portfolio. So they're quite entrepreneurial. They have access to capital. Um, but it doesn't always mean they're the right people to take on either because if you're the franchisor, particularly in a service-based business, you really want a, an owner-operator in many cases. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these people I've just spoken about have teams you know, and they, they, are able to, they have networks that they're able to get very good managers and all these things. So it is something that can work but, but something you need as a franchisor to, to think carefully about because people come and go. Yeah. And their their interest will often shift on to the next venture. So you've got to understand the profile of the person you're negotiating with and see how that fits your own business plans and, and needs as well. But there's definitely a lot from the international side, a lot from the, the Asian community and the Indian community as well, very active, again, mainly in, in food-type businesses. Yeah. Uh, and that's to me, has been quite a big change in the last five years, the, the percentage of people from the Indian community wanting to buy franchises. Um, but I guess, you know, there's no secret... People from India, people from you know, the subcontinent or Asia love brands. And, and again, it comes back to having a, a brand that uh, has some strength and some value and you know, people will want to invest in it. That's great, yeah. So, look, say you've got a, a franchise, so, so you've got a business owner who's got a very successful cafe or, or a service business and, and think they've got the formula for making it into mm-hmm. a franchise. I mean, what are your tips there? When should someone be looking to franchise a business? Well, I think as we touched on before, you you, you need to at least have had a, a proof of concept stage that you've worked through. I do get many phone calls from people saying, hey, Robert, look, I've got a, a couple of cafes or food mm-hmm. stores of some sort. We're so busy. Money's rolling in the right. door. We've got landlords offering us sites all over the place. You know, we think we'd like to franchise this. So... That's great and often is, is the trigger for people thinking of franchising. But you really need to, as we said, have a, a longer-term plan that always starts with your customer proposition, hmm. uh, as I touched on earlier. What do customers want? What will keep them buying from you? Because yep. if you're going to franchise, you really need to have you know, a 10-year vision. Yep. You'll break that down into three- or five-year chunks but as a franchise or typically you're committing to a at least a five to ten year time frame to develop and run the business even if you plan to sell it at some stage so you need to look at what the market's going to be in five to ten years yeah who are your competitors today who are they likely to be in the future if it's a technology or professional services based business you know the competitors emerge fairly quickly. You need to look at what the property market or the, or the retail leasing market is going to be as well because you know typically you'll sell a franchise for a, say a five-year period with options to renew, sometimes seven years. If you're taking, if you or your franchisees are taking on retail leases for five or seven years, what's the market going to be and those things as well. So there, there's a bit of forward thinking you need to to work through, and that's why my comment earlier about running straight off to the lawyers is a dangerous thing. Yeah. You, you just miss these important, bigger picture issues. But beyond, I guess, the proof of concept, I think you've got to make sure that, as I said, the leadership characteristics are there. I occasionally have to have conversations with franchise or new franchise or clients about, hey, look, you've got a great concept, 
yes, you can definitely franchise and grow, but you're probably the wrong guy to do it. Mm. So if you want to stay in charge of the business, you need to bring people into your team who are the right people to yeah. work with franchisees. So, so getting that team structure and, and support structure in place is important. The other factor, I guess, is around funding. You know, it does take money to, to launch and grow a franchise. Um, you, you really, you know, you've got to spend a bit of money on brand development, as I covered before, but there are some setup costs you need to go through with lawyers and consultants to get your model designed and built. And, you know, there's people around town who charge big, big prices for that big and some who charge that, less. Yeah. But, you know, realistically, you'd want to budget on at least $50,000 to do the basic setup work for a new franchise. And that mm-hmm. should include your legal costs, registering your, your trademark as well for, for brand protection. And then, yeah, then you have to have a budget beyond that for, you know, you've got to recruit your franchisees. So there's some advertising you need to do. Obviously, some travel as you go around the country, recruiting people and scouting for sites. So, so things can add up fairly quickly, but having the money to do that is important. I do see cases where aspiring franchisors don't have much money but still want a franchise, and they're looking to sell franchises as the way of yeah, raising money capital, to, yeah. to fund the next stage growth. It can work, but it's also a little dicey. It's better if you have a bit of a war chest mm-hmm. uh, and then properly plan how that's going to be spent over the first one to two years. So that, that's an important factor. But in terms of boosting that war chest to to get going, I mean, are there any methods you recommend or is it, again, depending on that situation? Because sometimes banks can, it can be a difficult thing to get a loan for franchises unless it's meeting certain criteria. Correct, yeah. And look, the the banks all changed their criteria and they certainly got tightened up a few years ago after the GFC. But generally a startup franchise the banks won't look at you for a lending package unless you've been around for operating as a franchise for at least three years, okay. probably have at least 20 franchisees or outlets operating. Sometimes I'll go down to 10 if it's you know something special about the business. But you have to have a bit of scale, a bit of proven track record. So getting a loan as a franchisor is, is difficult from a bank. Yeah. Now, equally, you may want to bring in a, a partner or an investor, someone who does have a bit of money to invest, but the, the, I guess the, the trade-off that you have to consider in those circumstances is whoever puts money into your business will obviously want some shares. And you know, depending on how much you give them, you could end up giving away effective control of your business. So if you're going to do that, you really need to make sure that the investor or partner has the, the same mindset as you about where the business should be heading. Because I have seen some examples where owners have got quite excited about finding an investor that can put a couple of hundred thousand dollars in, for example, but they've had to give up 30 or 40% of the company to do it. Even though they're still the majority shareholder themselves, the effective control sits with the investor because they say, I'm going to drip feed you this money and if you want the next bit, I need to be happy with what you're doing. So the practicalities of an investor can, can often be a little tricky. But this is why I have many conversations with people thinking of franchising and when we cover these sorts of issues about how much money have you got to support it and where can you access additional money? Often it's better to say, let's not franchise just yet. Let's work on a couple of things to be in a better position to franchise in, in 12 months' time. So yeah, unless it's one of these concepts like the technology ones where you need to get to market really quickly and, and grow very aggressively, often you're better being a little patient 
working through some steps to, like I said, accumulate your finances and also improve the, the track record of performance of your existing outlets as well. You know, the, the stronger, the more profit that your existing businesses are making, the more likely you'll sell franchises and the more people will pay for them. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about exits. So w- when should someone be thinking of, of exiting a business? I mean, obviously, there's those sort of personal stuff, but, you know, f- from a business perspective. Yeah, look, um, I guess because I come from a banking background, I, I might have a different view on this to some people. My view is you should be thinking of your exit before you even buy the business. Okay, that's good um, advice. Or even before you set up yeah. your franchise. Yeah. You know, when I sit down with a, a new client that's thinking of franchising, I always start by trying to get clear on their objectives over that five to ten year period. You know, what do they want out of this and, you know, do they want to exit at some point? If so... Who's the likely type of buyer, and what are the what are the characteristics of the business that those buyers will want to see? What's going to make them want to buy your business? Whether you're a franchisee or a franchisor, it's the same sort of method of thinking you need to go through about thinking who's going to buy this, why will they buy it? If you're a franchisee, I guess that the the key thing to think about with exit is you need to run. Well, there's a couple of factors. Obviously, you, your, your business needs to be well run and, and quite profitable. People generally don't buy businesses that are making a loss, or if they do, you know, it's a fire sale price and you're not yeah. going to recover your initial investment. One of the biggest mistakes a lot of franchisees make is they, they don't think about the exit or they lose sight of it. And as they're in the business and they see the cash coming through the till, they get excited and, you know, my daughter needs a new dress or we want to take a holiday or something like that. And, and they take cash out of the business and it doesn't go through the books. And that might be a good short-term thing to support your lifestyle. But when you want to sell your business and a buyer asks to see your profit and loss statements, well, obviously your revenue and your profit is going to be understated. Mm-hmm. And yeah, everyone sort of says, oh, well, yeah, we make more than this because we've been taking cash. But, but at the end of the day, the buyer and their accountant is only going to look at the profit and loss statement. And so you're really doing yourself out of some long-term money if you're not putting the cash through the business and not declaring your revenue because the multiples that people pay for a well-run business on the conservative side, you know, two times profit. Uh, on, on the aggressive side, could be up to five times. Yeah. So if you sort of extrapolate that to you know, how you've understated profit by taking cash out, the capital gain down the track can be quite greatly reduced as a result of what you've done. So that's a really big mistake that, that people make. Exit-wise, though, I think the other key thing about timing, if you're in a franchise, particularly a larger one, there's always going to be other franchisees from your group wanting to sell their business as well. Yeah. And you know, if, if people are signing up to five or seven-year agreements, statistically there's going to be maybe 10 to 15% of franchisees with their business on the market at any point and and that's okay but when you see a high number a disproportionate number of of franchises from your own group up for sale uh, the market gets flooded Mm -hmm. and um, you know prices will plummet so you really need to be watching not just your own business but be aware of what's happening within your franchise and have your finger on the pulse in terms of the volume of other franchisees that are looking to sell and what prices they're asking for because it can not only drag your price down, it can actually stop you from, from selling your business in some cases. Yeah. And in terms of I mean, the systematised processes you have in your, in your own franchise or business, 
those are also real value adds, aren't they? Like we've heard a few quotes like, if you want to see how well the franchise is running, is go on a vacation and, and see if it actually mm. runs without you. Mm. Are there are there any other non PL style pieces of value that you think are important for a franchise to keep working on when they're working towards that eventual exit? We covered one of them right. before. It's 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 about customer satisfaction. Yeah. You don't you know whether it's a food business yeah. or professional services or a trade business, your customers need to be happy with you. And so as a, as a buyer, you know, just running some basic Google searches and, and seeing what feedback there is mm. in the marketplace, mm. what, there's always you know, idiots out there that make stupid comments, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you look beyond that, it's a bit like using TripAdvisor when you're searching for a hotel. There's always someone that complains, right? Yeah. But if most people are, are positive yeah. about the business and the brand, right. then then that's a really good sign. So that's, yeah. that's a factor you should be aware of when, when looking to, to sell your business. If you're looking to sell in six months, you really want to work hard on cleaning up your online image and feedback sure. to mm-hmm. make sure there's a stream of positive reviews and so on. If you've got a, a string of bad ones, then you probably yeah. might need to delay the sale a bit mm-hmm. and, uh, and and work on getting those customer yeah. aspects right. Yeah, it, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? With all yeah, this research, does, yeah, yeah, yeah. The research just goes into Google. It's huge, now, and, yeah. and this is where it's you know. The, Online blogging and reviews can be quite dangerous. They're not yeah. always true yeah. uh, or they're exaggerated in some yeah. way, but the fact that they're there does yeah. influence you know, yeah. people's buying decisions. Sure. Yeah. And also what I was trying to get at is often there's an overt reliance on the, the founder or a certain few people in the company. So are there any ways to try and reduce that management risk so a new buyer can see that this is a system that doesn't mm. need that management? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, this always links back to brand as well. Yeah. If, if What are you really selling? Are you One of the things I talk through mm. with my startup franchise or clients is, I, I guess, trying to understand the role they play as the key person yeah. and how that role is going to change over time. Because you're exactly right. The business needs to become less reliant on them personally and, and more reliant on the systems and the brand that they develop together with the franchisees. If a business five years down the track is still very anchored around that key person, it's great for them, but if that person leaves or has a health problem, yeah. it can really affect the business overall. So, you know, the planning really needs to to build around that person and develop the brand. It's a bit like an onion. You develop mm-hmm. the layers around them and there'll be things in between like the management team as well. It doesn't always have to be about the number one guy, often there's a, a second layer of management in there with some very competent people who have profiles themselves, and, and that's a really good thing. Again, as a banker, when we were mm. developing the, the accreditation systems all those years ago, you know, we would look at the depth of management in the franchisor. It's not always about how many people they have in head office. It's about the skill set of those people and the roles they're performing and how that translates through to customer support and franchisee support as well. So that second layer in, in head office, operational people, field managers, you know, the ratio of field support to number of franchisees, they're all factors okay. that you can look at to, to get a yeah. sense of are True. these guys serious Detailed about running franchises? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it gets very deep. Yeah. 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 Sure. So, I mean, what do you think is unique about the Australian franchise market and what should international franchisees be, be weary of coming into this country? Australia is an expensive market in which to do business, but there's a, a lot of real positives. And, you know, when I'm talking to overseas companies who are thinking of bringing their franchise into Australia, 
there's a lot of things we take for granted in Australia. I guess I'll spell out a few. For example, we've got a very stable economy compared to particularly a lot of Asian countries where some of these franchises are coming from. Our economic system is, is stable and, and growing. Our political and legal systems are very strong here. So there's a structure and framework in which you can safely do business. And we also have a consumer market that is, is quite diverse. Again, in the food sector, we have a very multicultural consumer base. So bringing in food concepts from Asia or Europe or America, people in Australia love food. We eat out a lot. Yeah, People have good disposable income and they can support these things. We also have a franchising code that's quite different to many countries and uh, we're probably one of the most regulated franchise sectors in the world. Equally, you know, we, we per capita, we probably have the most number of franchises as well. We're very brand heavy when it comes to yep. this. So yep. they're all positive factors because, you know, things are stable, people have money to spend and, and so on. The other thing about Australia is our smaller size can often be a strategic advantage to some of these bigger overseas franchises. Two examples. One is, you know, say, a, a group out of America, yeah, they want to test a new concept, you know, first time they're stepping out of America. Well, you can do it in Australia because it's a small market, so it's easy to run your pilot program. Equally, if the pilot program fails, then not much damage is done on the global stage because mm-hmm. we're a small market. You know, if, if you went to Europe and did it more extensively, then the fallout is, is a lot stronger. So we're very good to experiment with, with yeah. you know, for these companies as well. Yeah. Culturally, you know, we're, we're quite different in many ways, I yeah. guess, and uh, one of the things I talk to a lot of overseas companies about, again, particularly Asian ones, is how to do business in Australia. You know, we have a lot of laws here that don't apply in other countries, so, you know, Workplace safety, for example, is, is something have very strict laws on here. Recent examples of you know, which have resulted in legislation around protecting vulnerable workers with the underpayment of wages, the 7-Eleven case, for example. You go to Asia and they don't care about that. No. no. <laughs> but coming to do business in Australia. Sure. The other thing, yeah, a uh, number of overseas companies, their way of dealing with contracts is very much looser than we have sure. here. So in Australia we have requirements to have a formal franchise agreement, quite a detailed disclosure process. I'm always seeing agreements from overseas which are sort of two pages long and definitely do not comply with what we do here in Australia. So these overseas franchises have to make some adjustments, but when they understand that Australia is a good market to make money in, a good market to do business, it's a safe place to do business, and it can actually act as a good test market for them expanding into other areas, then then they're quite positive. That tends to offset some of the negatives around the higher cost of doing business in Australia. Sure. The other big thing, Frank, that's quite different in Australia in a positive sense is, is our retail leasing market. In a lot of other countries, you can't get a lease you know, for more than three or four years, right. and you definitely won't get an option to renew. And if you do get a lease, often it comes with requirements from the landlord that you have to buy certain products from them as well. Mm. Okay. Now, you just can't do that in Australia. So, But you can not only get longer leases, but you can also, in some cases, get some very large fit-out contributions from you know, Westfield and other big landlords like that. So you know, if you can negotiate a $100,000 contribution to the construction and fit-out of your store, mm-hmm. that changes mm-hmm. the maths quite significantly. Completely. And yeah. you know, in, in some of these overseas markets, they can't get that. So okay. that's, that's a big positive here in Australia at the moment.
It's great. No, it's quite fascinating. And just in terms of the um, the structure of the industry and economy here as a, as a value add to Asian markets. And or from your experience, um, what's the general reputation of the Australian market overseas, like in Asia or the franchising mm-hmm. market? I mean, from our end, we, we, we do understand it's got a very clean reputation. Mm-hmm. It's got a reputation as being highly organised as well. But any thoughts on how, how Australia's branded? Well, I think the Australian brand is, is very, very strong. But that said, we also have the reputation of being an expensive yeah, place okay. to do business. You yeah, know, okay. Our wages are higher, our yeah, rents are yeah, higher. Yeah, um, land. Equally, yeah, and this is probably a good thing because it keeps keeps the cowboys away, but you know, some franchises are just in it for the money. Yeah. And so they don't want a regulated environment. They don't yeah. want disclosures and all these other things. So uh, there's a lot of cash under the counter at yeah, a franchise okay. all yeah. level. So just you can't do that in Australia. Yeah. But at a macro level, we are known through Europe and America and Asia as, as, as a quite an advanced market for yeah. franchising because we do have so many franchise brands. Yeah. And you know, a, a lot of them say, look, if, if, you can, if you can cut it in Australia, you can, you can yeah. do well anywhere else anywhere, because yeah. Yeah, if you can jump the hurdles that Australia puts in place, then yeah. you're going to have very solid franchise from a systems perspective and an mm. operational perspective. And you would have worked hard on on the economics of your business as well. So if you then want to sort of copy and paste that into an overseas market, it gives you a really good framework. So I, I do a lot of work with overseas companies that you do use Australia as a test case. You know, we say, look, we will set up your franchise model and your franchise agreement here, obviously compliant with Australian laws and standards. And then we will take that to other countries where we can you know, um, take a few bits out because their laws aren't as strong. But you've got a framework there that you can replicate anywhere in the world because you're sort of starting at the gold standard and and then sort of going backwards when you go to some of the other countries. If you're trying to do it the other way around, you'd have to reinvent things every time you went to a new country. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I think it's been really sort of interesting conversation. I think if anyone wanting to get in touch with with Robert, you can uh, go to the bottom of this, uh, this podcast yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have a link at the bottom of the podcast for anyone yeah. who wants to get in touch. And from your end, Robert, um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, um, how do they go about doing that as well? Well, look, yeah, go to my website, www.ceoconsulting.com.au. My personal mobile phone number is there, so more than happy to take a call directly. And, yeah, if you're a franchisor or a master franchisee wanting to, you know, thinking about franchising your business or, yeah. or just contemplating the whole process, Buy me a cup of coffee, I'll sit down for free <laughs> yeah. and, and just sit down for an hour with you and sort of talk it through and, and give you some direction. I think that's the best way to get to know each other and, and to sort out whether you're on the right track and, and maybe give you some new ideas. Fantastic. Well, fantastic. Thanks again for that, Robert. And anyone interested, all it would take is a cup of coffee and you never know where that could lead. So we encourage anyone to get in touch. Apart from that, it's been really insightful today, Robert, and we hope to hear you again on another podcast very soon. Great. Thanks, 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 thanks for having me. Eden Exchanges was brought to you by the team at Eden Exchange. In this episode, we spoke to Robert Graham of CEO Consulting. For more information on this or any other episodes by Eden Exchanges, head to EdenExchange.com or www.businessbyinvest.com. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for recent updates on the buying and investing business world. You can subscribe to the series on iTunes or Stitches if you're using Android. Thanks for listening.